You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, Patrick, and our friend Towner is back. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon. It's the Beltway Briefing. We're back. Mark and Towner, I'm not sure that the three of us belong on the same screen or on the same podcast with Patrick Martin. Oh, clearly don't. I mean, a feature story in Glen Ellen Living that I saw today. (laughs) I I mean, I, I don't think the three of us are worthy. I'll just give a hat tip to my wife for calling me the real Clark Griswold. Uh, the- <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Well, very flattering. Very, very I nice, Patrick. It's an upgrade from Illinois agriculture news or whatever the last feature was. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> the trend line, yeah, the trend line's good. Very good. Very Patrick's good. Well, getting some prime bookings. That's, that's right. All right. So... Um, I'm Patrick, I'm going to keep picking on you and, and point out that this morning you texted us and said we should talk about the Endless Frontiers Act, which is this China bill and the bipartisanship breaking out and, and Biden's foreign trip. And I said, what foreign trip? Nobody's talking about it. And it made me think about a... Um, and about political playbook, which is the the daily that pretty much everybody in Washington reads every morning about what's going on in town. And I opened it up yesterday on Thursday, and the first story was about a Bloomberg article on Donald Trump and what he's doing post presidency in Florida, and they had a whole bunch of stuff on that. That was the first story. And then they talked about Kamala Harris's trip to Central America and all the drama around that. There was no mention, actually, of the fact that Biden was leaving or no mention early on anyway. Um, Trump still consumes oxygen. And before this podcast, you said enough talk about Trump. I don't think we should talk about Trump, but. Patrick, in preparing for the podcast, I clicked on the homepage for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And in all three publications, there is all the top stories are about something other than Biden's foreign trap. He's but in a virtual sense, he's below the fold all three places. You got to scroll to get to a story about Biden's trip. In the case of the Post- There are multiple articles about Trump above the fold. Same thing for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. So, I mean, we're it's June. We're six months into Biden world, yet everybody's still talking about Trump. Is that appropriate? Should the media stop talking about Trump? Yeah, so I think a few things are going on here. And I actually noticed, Howard, the same thing. I, I clicked on CNN or or something earlier this week on the, the online version. The top three stories, I think, were all Donald Trump related. So the, a few things I notice going on. One, 
not in any of our lifetimes have we had a defeated president who has remained politically viable after defeat. And so that's something new that we're all sort of experiencing for the first time. Typically, when you lose, you're done. No one was begging George H.W. Bush or Jimmy Carter to mount a comeback. So this is just it's different. And this is something new for all of us who study politics. No one um, has ever had a former president who refuses to acknowledge he's a former president. Right. That's that's another good point. So you have that element. And then there's the, the part that we've talked about on this podcast before, which is, you know, Donald Trump is a drug that the you know professional East Coast media is just addicted to. And they're never going to stop as long as blood is pumping through his veins. They are going to cover <laughs> what comes out of his mouth because they just can't help themselves. It's too entertaining. It's too ridiculous. And even though they will feign uh, being offended and angry and all this stuff on cable news, they can't stop. They, they, they just can't. Uh, and so those are kind of my general yeah. observations. I mean, Patrick, pa- Patrick ahead, isn't that good for Joe Biden? Isn't that good for Joe Biden that Donald Trump is story one, two, and three? And by the way, on that same CNN website, Jill Biden was story number four, and right. her meeting with the Queen uh, was above uh, Joe Biden and meeting with the G7. Uh, isn't that a good thing, though, that that he's he's staying out of the fray oh, and it, let it, Tr- Trump lead? It might be because he's having a normal presidency and the press is choosing to cover kind of the Trump sideshow. But I think what is probably somewhat to the degree President Biden cares about the media coverage, I think something that is probably discouraging is that you know, he wants to turn the page on the whole chapter. And he feels like his election was the country saying, we want to go back to just normal and not, you know, crazy. And and so I do, well, I, you know, but Mark, but you, what do you Patrick, think? You can't conflate what is being talked about inside the Beltway, hence the Beltway briefing, <laughs> with what people are actually talking about in the country. Right. In the country... I don't believe the president is the subject of hourly concern and conversation like he was for four years. I think this is a beltway phenomenon. It's a mainstream media phenomenon. And I'm with Towner. I think Joe Biden's just fine with it because what he cares about is getting stuff done that people in the country are actually talking about. So I I think this is appropriate for the Beltway briefing, but once you get beyond whatever the number of the Beltway is, uh, I I don't think it has the same currency. And Howard, I'm amazed you went to the Wall Street Journal and didn't bring up the article on the Nantucket town meeting. No, that's Mark. That's for later in the show. (laughs) I mean, that is. I have something to say about that. Total eclipse of the political sun. Yeah. Hey, uh, Mark, I bet, rules the world. I bet this is going to come up, though. I bet his name's going to come up when he meets with Putin in a couple of days. Right. Uh, you know, when he's when he's chummy chummy with the G7 and uh, joking around with his buddies in the in the free world uh, yesterday and today and tomorrow. It's not going to be a news story. But when he sits down with Putin uh, in a couple of days here, it's going to be a news story. Because that's something people care about and they care about it because they think Putin's the one who was behind the ransomware attack on the pipeline and the uh, meatpacking plant and the steamship authority, Howard. 
So that that's actually an issue people care about. But it but it's perverse, Mark. You are saying that the mainstream media and the Beltway are keeping alive discussion about the guy that they all hate. Yeah, but I don't think they're keeping it alive. I mean, no, I, no. I I do think they're covering to to the phenomenon part of this we talked about, which is a, a first term president, a one term president who lost who's still viable, and Mark's point about having not accepted defeat. We also like have witnessed a single person seize control of one of our two political parties. Like where, I mean, honestly, anything this guy says goes. Anyone he endorses is the immediate front runner. Barack Obama never had that. Bill Clinton never had that. George W. Bush never had that. I mean, maybe like FDR. You guys tell me, is there another person? Yeah, who has then, Patrick. Yeah, I, even I wasn't around. I didn't mean you guys were alive, but you know what I'm saying. Is there Howard someone Jack in history that had this level of Mark, control over Mark, were you featured in Colonial Living? <laughs> Colonial <laughs> Living Magazine? In, yeah, Lawrence Living. Lawrence Deanna Living. At the beginning of the New Deal, Patrick. The Mayflower Times. The yeah. only time you ever lived in re the real America in which you love to speak of, right? Yeah. Lawrence, Indiana. Um, but here's the thing. Yeah. Democrats want him to stick around. They want to be able to talk about him because if they don't, they're going to lose seats in the midterm elections. If Trump is not effectively point. on the ballot in 2022, then Democrats lose the House. Period. End of story. And Republicans, most of whom yeah. are inside the Beltway, don't want Trump's name out there right now because they're winning. If they if they can keep him from doing a nationwide tour, speaking tour with Bill O'Reilly coming up this summer, if they can keep him from doing some of the other things, they're going to win. They're going to win the House back and we're going to get tired of winning. The Manhattan Howard. District yeah. Attorney may keep him from going on a barnstorming tour, but but Towner, what if they win anyway? What if Trump is front and center and the Republicans pick up seats? Then isn't the story that it doesn't that make it harder to whether or not he had an impact? Doesn't that harder for the party to to rid themselves well, of Trump? That gives us a 2024 problem like you can't yeah. ever imagine. Right. But it, it is there's a perversity to it. That's a good word, Howard. It's perverse in a number of ways. But I think uh, Democrats want Trump on the ballot when Democrats are reading the paper. They don't want him on the ballot when Republicans are reading the paper because he's a turnout machine. And that that is my concern about 2022 and the continued relevance of Donald Trump. If he would just put his pants on backwards and go away, then I I think we would be in a lot better shape in 2022. That was the best thing that happened all week, by the way. I mean, that was they just, were on backwards. They were absolutely on backwards. And I I I just how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> who gets that many wrinkles in suit pants standing well, up? I mean, when he stood up and, yeah, I read some tweet when he zipped him up in the back. Wasn't that the sign that they were on? I don't know. <laughs> so how is that possible? I don't even rank that in the top hundred impossible things that have happened in the last five years. So speaking of that and speaking of Trump, a couple of interesting thing hap things happened this week done by the Biden administration to defend Donald Trump. The first one was on Monday, Justice 
filed court documents in the lawsuit brought by Gene Carroll against him. It's a defamation lawsuit. And um, they filed court documents defending Trump and his immunity from from prosecution. And um, today there was reporting about efforts to stymie Democratic congressional efforts to obtain information on the Trump Hotel in Washington. So, Mark, you've got multiple instances this week of the Biden administration defending Donald Trump. How do you feel about that? I think perversity is the word of the day. I think it's absolutely perverse. But but it is a function of something that is important and and welcome after five, four years of the opposite. This goes in the category of the rule of law. Merrick Garland's Justice Department is not defending Trump in that case because they want to politically advantage him. Now, I I admit I haven't studied the case. I don't get why it's the rule of law for the Justice Department to do it. But but that, too, is a perversity that no one's paying any attention to, Howard. That is, if ever there were a beltway item that nobody anywhere else knows or cares about, it's what the Justice Department is doing in that defamation case. It's above the fold right now, as we speak, in the three most significant media organizations in the country. The, the most important thing. I didn't see it in Glen Ellen living, Howard. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Howard, it's because the most important thing to any White House, I don't care which party it is, but any White House is executive privilege and right. maintaining executive privilege because Congress is immune from Freedom of Information Act, but the White House is not. And as a result of that, you can read the White House's emails. You can't read your member of Congress's emails. They're never released anywhere for any reason. And so the most important thing for any White House, no matter how corrupt they think the last one was, was making sure that they protect themselves for the next four years. Listen, yeah. I fought a lot of those battles when I was on the inside. You're, of course, exactly right. It's about the precedent. And it's about the application of negative precedent to to them. And obviously they they don't care to defend. They, they're holding their nose the whole time, but they're doing it for presidential reasons. And Patrick, it's it's I think it's really instructive to our clients. Um, obviously not this particular issue, right. but precedent is a very significant driving force in everything we do. Um, and, and the, the government often does things not because they necessarily are logical, but because they set precedent. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And, and to what Mark was saying earlier, I mean, I think just the feeling of kind of this all being a little depoliticized and, and the separation and the independence that the justice department has on something like this, I think is, is the whole point of of why the president picked Merrick Garland. I will say a lot of the process stories that came out in the category of things no one in the country is talking about, but everyone in the Beltway was interested by was 
a lot of the press of stories around the Biden Garland relationship, or, or maybe more accurately, the White House's relationship with Garland and top officials at the Justice Department. And it felt really normal. You know, th- this is like a a tug that we've seen. I mean, remember President Clinton nominated Janet Reno because he had had two female nominees that had both not worked out for various reasons. And he had already appointed three men to the other big four cabinet positions. Like he had to pick the most qualified woman uh, to be attorney general. He did. They didn't have a relationship. And he ended up uh, through his own actions uh, and, and others having a really difficult relationship with the Justice Department over a whole variety of things. Um, you wonder if President Biden selected Merrick Garland for all the right reasons. But maybe I don't know how well he really knows him or or if, if there is going to be kind of this normal push and pull between the Justice Department and the White House, which, frankly, to a lot of us is a healthy thing, I think. Patrick, wasn't wasn't uh, Biden on the the vetting team for Garland when Obama put him up for Supreme Court? That I don't know. He he may have been. He might be right on that. Um, But I just wonder how well they know each other, you know, how like what kind of relationship there is there. Well, look, it's it's part and parcel of what we do for a living. Yeah. In order to understand the way things are break, you have things are going to break. You have to kind of trace the trace the relationship and figure out how people know one another and and whether they do. And if so, under what terms? And, you know, the media glosses over a lot of the, you know, things that people inside the Beltway know to be the case, like under Obama. if you if you just look at the media, you think that. Joe Biden was like a a key internal actor in the Obama administration and in the room for every decision and and that they were best buddies. And we we know that absolutely was not the case. None of that was the case. It's not they they get along, but I think he was in the room. I don't I'm not sure he had a vote, but. I think he was often invited. The president's the president and the vice president's the vice. It's the same in every executive agency that I've ever worked in and that we've ever dealt with. People talk about getting to the deputy, you know, okay, but the deputy doesn't make the decisions. The deputy is a bystander. doesn't matter that they're part of the same party. In fact, they often get along worse when they're part of the same party because they both want the same job. You just have to know the laws of nature. And it's what we do for a living each and every day. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is you see some of these headline grabbing things, yeah. and but it's like very much the laws of nature and what we see each and every day play out in our issues that aren't necessarily headline issues, but that are trying to get the yeah, president Obama and Eric Holder didn't know each other that well. Uh, when he appointed him, they ended up becoming incredibly close over the course of his tenure as president over shared experience for a variety of different things. Uh, my suspicion to the original question, I kind of think he thought, uh, like a lot of Americans said that Merrick Garland got a really raw deal, uh, and that the pick would infor- reinforce, uh, what he thought was really important, which was independence of the justice department. Uh, but it may be that, you know, it's going to, that's going to play out for the white house a little yeah. differently okay. than they'd like sometimes. What are we, 
I must have missed a story. Where is it that the attorney general has gotten sideways with the president in this past week? I think to Andrew's point, all this Trump stuff that he's doing, defending Trump and and the uh, congressional uh, issue, that's all supporting the president. White House. Yeah, there was a lot of things this week about lack of communication or heads up before these actions were taking place. A lot of, uh, and Howard, you've lived this in the executive branch, a lot of back and forth over key appointments at the Justice Department. He wants to bring in his former clerks. The White House wants to bring in their people, which it's like, my point was, this all feels very normal. This, yeah. you know, it's not who's going to get fired today for following the law. It's, it's like right. we're talking about normal right. stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. It is normal. So, Towner, you mentioned 2022 and, you know, you're you're Mitch McConnell, you're Kevin McCarthy. How are you thinking about 2022 now? What what's their game? What are they? Yeah. What are they um, thinking about as it relates to to what's going on? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I think the the conventional wisdom is that uh, Republicans can win back the House, but the Senate's going to be a heavy lift. There aren't enough uh, blue states or purple states that are controlled by Democratic senators in play uh, at this point to be able to get uh, the Senate potentially. Republicans have a difficult uh, election year again in 2022 in the Senate. But, you know, the House, they have a chance. And if you're Mitch McConnell, you are laser focused, stay the course. You saw the the blow up even this week, uh, or I did at least in the, in the Republican circles about how he wouldn't, uh, again, uh, address, uh, Donald Trump. He wouldn't, you know, talk about, uh, his, his going out and barnstorming to be a good thing. And, uh, Mitch McConnell just wants to pretend like Donald Trump doesn't exist. It's, it's amazing. He's, he won't even answer the question. Uh, he, he, he's asked it over and over and over again throughout the course of a week. Meanwhile, on the House side, they are embracing. I mean, this is like an open bear hug. We had, you know, half a good chunk of members of the of the Republican Study Committee, the RSC, which is a conservative caucus that uh, many of the of the House Republicans belong to, went up to New Jersey uh, to to visit and kiss the ring. They ended up hanging out for a whole afternoon, having dinner at the the Bedminster uh, uh, Club up there, that uh, Trump's club. So, I mean, we have two completely different strategies here, uh, which is uh, a little mind numbing for uh, for those of us in the in the D.C. Republican community who are trying to figure out uh, which one is the is the party's message right now? Are we embracing or are we ignoring? I'm not sure how to react to Donald Trump. I got yeah, two leaders is, who have diverged. But what is in common, what both strategies have in common, of course, is that Trump is the centerpiece. One's going one way, one's going the other way. But to Howard's original question about why are people talking about Trump? It's because the Republican Party strategy, whether it's the House or the Senate or elsewhere, it is all centered on on one man because it isn't a party. It's a cult. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And Caitlin isn't here to really wrap your knuckles (laughs) over that. Poor Caitlin. She goes Uh, away for a week of vacation and it rains all week. I feel I feel like I can't let that comment stand though. I mean, Caitlin would would call me immediately after this is released. Exactly. Come on, I thought you up there for you to. I know you did. You did. It's uh, you know, 
it's look for the House Republicans. Trump is still a messaging point. No doubt about it. They want to have a positive reaction here for Mitch McConnell. He needs independence in the Senate races. You don't necessarily need independence in the House races right now. And so the path is different. But Mitch McConnell's problem is that in Ohio and Pennsylvania, North Carolina, where the Republicans have to defend open seats that uh, that a Republican has vacated, the state parties are going to nominate Trumpsters. So McConnell can ignore him all he pleases, but he isn't going to get a an independent candidate running in 2022 in Ohio, Pennsylvania, or North Carolina against the Democrat. Trump it is Trump is going to dictate not Trump personally, although I stand by my cult comment, but Trumpsters are going to pick the candidates in those three Senate races. This is about turnout. Yeah. I mean, like it always is. The turnout last year was crazy. I mean, through the roof. Staggered. And the question is, the fewer Democrats come out when Trump isn't on the ballot, while at the same time Trump pulling the same kind of creating the same kind of energy on the Republican side. One criticism, Towner, I'd be curious your perspective on this. I just think it's an interesting time. You know, one thing I always heard kind of coming up in Capitol Hill politics was a, a criticism from the Republican side was, and this was, you know, the folks who were real disciples of Paul Ryan and Jack Kemp and the big thinkers in the party, that the Republican party was the party of ideas and ideology and the Democratic party was just sort of a coalition of of people based on race and sexual orientation and where you live and, and a whole bunch of things that are, are not to be, uh, you know, minimized at all, but but are not based around ideology. They're based around identity. No, ideology versus identity. Policy. So now is, is my question is, I always you know, th- would hear that. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something to that. Now it seems like neither party is defined by ideology. You have one party that is defined by fidelity to one man. Uh, and you have another party that is still sort of a coalition of people of all different types of people that happen to, to unite, whether because they're the opposition to the other party or because, uh, you know, they share some, but ideology, this is not like a Ronald Reagan, type party, right? And and on the Democratic side, this isn't a an ideology focused party. It's not because Trump wasn't a Ronald Reagan type Republican. Uh, you know, a lot of folks will say, I'm not even sure he is a Republican. He's more of a, I don't know what, maybe a libertarian. But I generally say Republicans are the party of no ideas and Democrats are the party of bad ideas. So it's, uh, you know, that's I sort of feel like is is the mantra nowadays is Republicans just say no to everything. Uh, and Democrats, you know, throw as much uh, against the wall as they possibly can, as we've seen with the, the jobs plan and the family's plan. And, you know, hey, it's easy to to spend, you know, six trillion dollars and and we can put a Coke can in the in the school cafeteria, too, if you elect me class president or uh, class president this year. We'll put the 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 Coke machine in the uh, in the cafeteria. So, you know, it it's easy to say you can have anything you want. Uh, and it's hard for Republicans to say, no, you can't have everything you want. We have to think about this a little bit more uh, thoughtfully uh, as we as we piece together some of these bills. And so, um, you know, 
the, the question uh, as to whether or not Trump is a is a is a cult candidate, uh, Patrick, that you bring up that that Mark has brought up. Uh, the question is more: How does Trump affect turnout uh, in what will be a midterm election where turnout will be low? You are going to see significant percent less turnout in a midterm election for a Senate race. And so, if you can motivate the Trump base to come out and vote for that Republican candidate, uh, that person wins. Uh, Democrats' turnout fluctuates tremendously, uh, even when they don't necessarily care about their presidential candidate, aka Hillary Clinton. Uh, when Trump got elected, Democratic turnout was not high uh, in that year, but then surged, obviously, when they wanted to get Trump out of office uh, in this last election. So you look to the midterm and you're telling me you're going to give me a high turnout rate by having Trump's name still in the mix. Uh, and that means we win a lot of seats. Well, maybe. We will maybe. Uh, maybe see it in the House is a little premature. To be Speaker continued, McCarthy. to be continued. <laughs> This is a retro edition of the Beltway Briefing. We we dialed it back about six months. and Yeah. Um, well, no, Patrick took it all the way back to FDR. I want to go back to the New Deal. Right. There you go. Well, guys, was Patrick. a great discussion. A great discussion as always. We hope Caitlin is having fun on vacation despite the rain. And uh, we will be back next week. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.